my electronic paraphernalia working here. I put the clicker in my pocket, which was probably not wise. There you go. I got too many things there. All right. Couldn't find the on-off switch last week. Found it this week. So, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We thank you for the incredible grace, the incredible mercy that you showed us when you sent your son into this world to live and to die for us. Lord, help us as we live in this increasingly uncertain age to learn to trust you, to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be faithful representatives, faithful reflections of you in this world. And we'll give you the praise for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm waiting for my slides to show up here. So I, you know, I thought of that coming over. I've gotten so dependent on the PowerPoint that uh, you know, if that doesn't work, I have to push the button? Really? I have to make it work? Oh, there it is. Yeah. I really am not quite this non-high tech. It's just, you know, that's like, I'm very, you know, very hip electronically. So anyway, uh, you know, it's hard. One of the first things I do every morning when I get up, I'll turn on my iPad and I'll, I'll go to CNN or, or Fox News or any of the other news outlets, and it's becoming depressing, I guess, is the only thing I can say, because almost with, with frightening regularity, when I bring up that screen, I see you know, 15 killed here by a terrorist, five, there were uh, several shot in Austin last night or early this morning, only one, as I know, died. Uh, but it seems like you know, here in the States, around the world, the world is changing, and not for the better. I grew up in the 60s. Uh, I grew up in a very turbulent era. And although I was, you know, I was born in 1955, so I was still fairly young, just a young teenager at, at the height of things in 1968, but I can still remember that year of assassinations, the year when Martin Luther King was shot, the year that Bobby Kennedy was shot. And I remember just the feeling of, you know, what's going on in our world? And I was still young. I really didn't, hadn't sorted out much of anything. I didn't know the Lord yet. But the world was a scary place during that time. And then we kind of moved on from that, and it seemed like things were getting at least a little bit better. And yet, over the last what decade or so, really since 9/11, things have gotten progressively scarier. And here in the United States, in the West, we've we've sort of been isolated. You know, we 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 watch on the news and we see some of these things that are happening around the world, and it's almost as if we live in a a little bubble where we see those things. And you know, part of us feels sad and compassion for the people that have to live 
with that kind of terrorism and that kind of fear every day. And yet part of us feels relief that it hasn't reached us here. It was very unsettling last week when I saw that in France, which has been particularly hard hit by terrorists, the two men went into a Catholic church and forced the priest to kneel. And then they slit his throat. And that was when I realized the bubble that we live in is merely an illusion. Because there is not a thing on earth that would prevent that from happening right here today. We live in a very frightening world. Now last week I began the Disciples Manifesto, which is taken from the Sermon on the Plain, uh, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at Matthew's version. But I pointed out that there were a couple differences between those two. We'll talk about them in a minute. But I call this the Disciples Manifesto because we as Christians need to have a very clear idea of how we're going to respond and react in an ever more dangerous world. Now the word manifesto just means a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its issuer. And so last week we looked at the first part of the Sermon on the Plain. Now again, most of us are more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's version. But we did look at a couple compares and contrasts. Remember, Matthew is more internal. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Luke is much more external. He just says, blessed are you poor. And blessed are you hungry. And blessed are you who weep. And blessed are you who are persecuted and hated and excluded and maligned. And that's where the first half of the manifesto comes in. The Disciples' Manifesto means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I may be poor and hungry and weeping and persecuted and hated and excluded and insulted, but there's no merit in those things individually. In other words, being poor isn't an automatic access into the kingdom of God. Being hungry isn't an open gate into heaven. Because at the end of, of, the, uh, of the, the four blessings that Jesus gives in, in Luke chapter 6, which is where we'll be today, he says, blessed are you if you are poor, weeping, persecuted, hated, excluded, insulted because of the Son of Man. You see, identification with Jesus Christ carries with it an inherent price. And that price is that we may be poor, we may be hungry, we may be weeping, we may be persecuted because of our association with him. Now, it goes back to Jesus' mission statement. Remember, we looked at this last week too briefly. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, as he is in Nazareth, identifies why he has come. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to re uh, preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I've come to reach out to the poor. I've come to reach out for the prisoners. I've come to reach out for the blind. I've come to reach out to the oppressed. And by identifying with me, ironically, you will become part of those excluded groups. You will be poor. You will be hungry. You will be weeping. You will be persecuted, hated, excluded, insulted because of the Son of Man. You see, identification with Jesus Christ comes with a price. Now remember, we live in the West where we haven't, as a rule, had to pay that price. We haven't, as a rule, had to experience poverty for the kingdom of God or being hungry for the kingdom of God or weeping for the kingdom of God. I spent three years uh, on staff at First Baptist Dallas as part of their prison ministry. And uh, the man who was head over our missions department, uh, he's forgotten more about missions than I'll ever know. But he and his wife were serving in Uganda when Idi Amin came to power. Now, if you're younger, you may not remember that well, but those of us who have been around for a while know that Idi Amin was a brutal dictator, killed people left and right. And I remember Lanny was his name, the, the man I worked under, and he, he said, you know, it's a very strange feeling to stand by the graves of people that you led to Christ who died as martyrs for their faith. In the United States, we haven't had to pay that price as a rule. Jesus said, this is what is there for you. Now, I, I said last week at the end of the message, what do we do if we haven't had to be persecuted? What do we do if we aren't poor for the kingdom of God? What if, what if we aren't suffering for the kingdom of God? Does that mean that, there is, that we don't have blessing? No but it means that we need to calculate our response and understand how we are to live when and if that happens in our lives. And that leads us to the disciples' ethic, love your enemies. What are we supposed to do if we are poor, if we're persecuted, if we're hated, if we're rejected for Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus has an answer for that. It's not necessarily the answer we want to hear. Jesus says, and you can read along with me in the text there, starting at verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. The word literally means to abuse you. Jesus says, this is, this is the ethic. This is how I want you, my disciples, to live in this world. Remember, he's talking to people who were going to be going out and facing opposition, at the very minimum, being cast out of the synagogue, which basically made them a cast, outcast in society. He was talking to people who, if they went back to their families and identified themselves with Jesus Christ, were going to probably be rejected by their families. And remember in those days, you, as a rule, if you were a regular person, you lived day to day. You didn't have a bank account. You didn't have huge stores of food. 
What if you're cast out by your family? What if you're cast out of the synagogue? Nobody will do business with you. What if somebody, as you walk down the street, curses at you and maligns you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus says, bless that person. What if somebody abuses you? What if, what if some people take you out and beat you up because of the name of Christ? He says, pray for them. Now, Jesus explains what this looks like. You know, he's not going to just let us off the hook and say, here's the general principles. Okay, go do it. He gives us some illustrations. He says, here's an illustration. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Okay. <laughs> you mean I can't just hit him back? No. If somebody hits you, you turn the other cheek. It gets worse. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Now, you know how your clothes worked back then. You know, you, you had basically the tunic, which was a, you know, a body-length garment. You had a cloak that would go over it. Whether or not they wore loincloths, loin I don't know. But Jesus is using a very extreme illustration. He says, basically, if somebody takes your cloak, give him your tunic also. In other words, he's saying, hey, run around in your underwear if you have to. Or be naked. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Extreme illustration? Maybe. But Jesus said, this is, this is what loving your enemies looks like. Somebody hits you, you don't hit back. Somebody takes your cloak, you give him the shirt off your back. If somebody demands that you give them something, you give it to them and, and you don't demand it back. And then in, in chapter 6, verse 31, he gives us a governing principle. And it's one we all know. We learned it from vacation Bible school. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now that's the basic principle. For my disciples, as you go out into the world and face hostility and face a world that doesn't love you, he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. How do you want to be treated? Then make that your standard for how you will treat others. You know, we, we know that. We know that as well as we know John 3.16. But we have a hard time putting that into practice, even in the body of Christ, let alone with enemies outside Christ. Do to others as you would have them do to you. A very simple ethic, and yet profound if you practice it. Now, this wasn't a new concept, incidentally, to them. Back in Exodus chapter 23, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. Now, he didn't say, if you come across your neighbor's ox or donkey. He said, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey, you take it back to them. If you see, verse 5, the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. 
You know, the temptation is the guy who hates me, he's been mean to me, he's been nasty. I see his donkey has fallen under his load. And I walk by, I say, yes. <laughs> That's what I want to do. Moses told him, no, don't leave it there. You go help him with it. Really? Do I have to do that? Now, Leviticus, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I like this one, Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, when I first read that years and years and years and years ago, I thought it meant, yeah, I'd be good to my enemies, and God will zap them. He's going to put burning coals on their head and they will burn forever. And that's not what it means. Actually, this bumper sticker better describes it. Love your enemies. It will drive them crazy. Because the idea of the burning coals is that your love shown to them will bear on their heart and their mind. And they will say, how can that person possibly love me? After what I've done to them. Now, Jesus explains the reason behind that ethic. It's very simple. But often we don't think about it. Verse 32 of Luke chapter 6, he says, if you love those who love you, there you go, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Okay, Jesus said, here's, here's, here's an illustration of why I'm telling you to love your enemies. If you love people who love you back, no big deal. Everybody does that. Jesus says, even sinners do that. Go out and to the world and find somebody who has kids as a rule. He said, do you love your kids? Yeah, I love them. They love me back, yeah. Do you love your wife? Yeah. No, there are always exceptions, and more, and more so in our crazy world. But normally, if you love someone who loves you back, that's pretty normal. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Sinners do that too. No. That's quid pro quo. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know Latin, but I know that phrase because Hannibal Lecter used it in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, quid pro quo. You do for me, I'll do for you. That's normal. That's what everybody does. And if you lend from those to, uh, to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Well, even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. And that, again, was that, that quid pro quo mindset. When you lent money, you lent it with an expectation it's going to be paid back. Again, pretty basic. Everybody does that. But Jesus says, here's where, where the distinction comes. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them without expecting anything back and your reward will be great. Why? Because you will be the sons of the Most High. Because he is kind 
to the ungrateful and the wicked. Remember what Paul says in Romans 5? You know, someone might die for a righteous man. But God shows his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't love him. We hated him. We had no use for him. God could have looked at this world in rebellion to him and said, let them all go to hell. I'm not going to save them. He could have said that. But he didn't. He came into the world that we might be reconciled to him. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And here's the punchline. Jesus says, be merciful as your father is merciful. That's what it all boils down to. He says, you want to know what the ethic of a disciple should be? It should be to imitate God the Father and show the kind of mercy he showed. Now, we don't have time to go into all of this, but if you go through the Old Testament, you will find, you know, so often I hear people describe the you know, God of the Old Testament is mean and hateful and judgmental and all that. And I said, you have not read the Old Testament carefully, have you? Now, I could go into a lot of verses, but one of my favorites is from the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who forgives the remnant of his people? He says... You delight to show mercy. You do not always stay angry, but you delight to show your hesed, your unfailing love. Jesus said, that's the ethic of a disciple. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Okay, wrapping it up. What do we do with all that? Again, we still live in a bubble. That bubble is illusionary, but it's still around most of us. How should we live? Well, first of all, let's think. How does the world see us? We are followers of Jesus Christ. Most of the time we call ourselves evangelicals. There are lots of different flavors. But how does the world see you and me? I did a search on that phrase. Why are evangelicals so? Now, if you, if you take search engines and you type in a phrase, they will very helpfully try to help you figure out what it is you're searching for, as if you didn't know what you were searching for. But it is kind of interesting when you type in those phrases and see what the search engine suggests. So on the search, why are evangelicals so? This is what Google suggested. Oh, that's really tiny. You may not be able to see it. Why are evangelicals so stupid? Well, why are they so racist? Why are they so angry? And why are they so conservative? Well, let's drop the, the conservative and stupid. Why are they so racist? Did you know that the world perceives you and me as racist? You might say, well, that's unjustified. No, it isn't. And when I was at Dallas Seminary, I don't remember which prof said it, 
but one of my profs said, do you know why Martin Luther King and so many of the civil rights leaders got their theological degrees from liberal seminaries? Because the evangelical seminaries were segregated. They wouldn't take blacks. Do we have a problem with racism? You better believe we have a problem with racism. Why are they so angry? Well, let's not stop there. Let's, let's see what Bing had to say. It's another one I don't use it much. There it goes. Why are evangelicals so hateful, so judgmental? They're stupid. We'll skip that one again. Gullible, yeah. Angry, hated, hateful and mean, hypocritical. That's how the world perceives you and me. When most people out in the world think of evangelicals, this is the image they get. Westboro Baptist Church. Now, you might say, that's, a, that's extreme. Yeah, it is, because you and I are not like that. And I didn't say we were. I said, that's how the world sees us, most of them. Maybe that's a little bit more accurate. They may not all see us as people who stand on a picket line saying, God hates you. But often they see evangelicals as angry, as mean, as judgmental, as hateful. Now, some of that reaction is obviously unjustified. And some of it goes with being a Christian. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. So there is a certain expectation that the world will hate us. Do not be surprised, my brothers, First John, if the world hates you. But we have kind of gone beyond that in evangelicalism. Because among many of us, there is a mindset that we Christians are under attack, and we're going to defend ourselves. We're going to stand up. We're not going to take this anymore. What do you expect? That we should turn the other cheek? Or love our enemies? Or beat our swords into plowshares? And I love Jesus' reaction. Well, actually, yeah, that's exactly what he told us. Because you see, ultimately, it doesn't matter whether the hatred from the world is justified or unjustified, only in the sense that people should never hate us because we have been hateful. But it doesn't matter whether the world hates us you know, properly or improperly. What matters is that we have been called to be imitators of God. We have been called, as Paul said here, to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, oh, Jesus put it this way, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. The Disciples Manifesto, to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that I may be poor, hungry, weeping, persecuted, hated, excluded, or insulted because of the Son of Man. But no matter how I am treated, I will imitate my Heavenly Father and respond with extravagant mercy. How do we do this? 
We can start by being kind to one another. I've been fascinated this political season, and I'm not going to get into politics, but I've been fascinated by what I see, and actually not just fascinated, I've been grieved by what I see. Because what I'm seeing online, on Facebook, on comments, articles people have posted back and forth, I see Christians hurling accusations at one another, saying, well, if you support this candidate, you can't be a Christian. Or if you support that candidate, you can't be a Christian. Or if you don't support this candidate, you can't be a Christian. Or if you don't support that candidate, you can't be a Christian. This is just a free aside. There are people on all sides of the political spectrum who love Jesus Christ. There are people on all sides of this issue who love God, who follow him, and who would give their lives for Jesus Christ, who have different opinions. Shall we as believers have grace toward one another? It's a good place to start because you see, part of the reason the world sees us as hateful is because how we treat one another. And we're not always very gracious about that. So we can start by being kind to one another. As for the other, this is a commentary I read preparing for this message. I want to throw a couple quotes out that I thought were very helpful. I don't know if you can read that. Yeah, you can. Love, doing good, blessing, and praying for those that are our enemies also assumes another reality that we are in relational contact with the outside world. If you want to love your enemies, you actually have to be out there in the world in contact with people who don't love Jesus Christ. The ability to be struck on the cheek means we are in striking distance and have risked making the effort to make contact. The fortress, call that bubble, mentality that sometimes invades the church is a form of retreat as well as a denial of what Jesus calls for from disciples in this sermon. It's an, it is an abandonment of the very relational ground that can turn a Saul into a Paul. Last week, I referred to Richard Wormbrand and his wife, Sabina. If you weren't here last week, Richard and his wife were serving in the Lutheran Church over in Romania through World War II. They are Jewish Christians, incidentally, or were. They've both passed on. After the liberators came through at the end of World War II, it was the Soviets who liberated them, and uh, they went out of the frying pan and into the fire. They went from one persecutor to another. And uh, Richard wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. You can read that book free online. I recommend you do so. Uh, just go to torturedforchrist.com, and you can download it. But I want to read a very brief clip from it because he explains what was involved. I can find the quote here. There we go. I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonful of salt had been forced being kept afterward without water, starved, whipped, suffering from cold, and 
praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which is poured out in our hearts. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists, even communist rulers, are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. And now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. Payback time, right? Well, while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week. And the medicine that could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. These are the last words of Iliu Maniu, a Christian and former prime minister of Romania who died in prison. Quote, if the communists are overthrown in our country, it will be the most holy duty of every Christian to go into the streets and at the risk of his own life defend the communists from the righteous fury of the multitudes whom they have tyrannized. You know, when I read that, I said, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could you know, given one slice of bread a week, give my only slice of bread to the man who had a week earlier beaten and tortured me. Give my medicine to someone who had forced salt down my throat. And that's the point. You can't, and neither can I. Because that kind of love is a divine love. It is a love that it is impossible for you and me to generate. Now, thank God we don't face that kind of persecution. And hopefully we never will. But the point is, it still takes that kind of divine love to live like Jesus Christ. Because no matter what situation you face, you cannot love your enemies apart from the power of God. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Those are the words to take out today. Take them out with a prayer, Lord, I can't do this. But with the Holy Spirit's power, I can. Grant that people will see Jesus Christ in me, in how I deal with other Christians, in how I deal with the world, and God forbid, how I deal with somebody who has hurt me deeply, or persecuted me, or killed a relative. Because it is that kind of love that can change a Saul into a Paul. And that's what Richard Wormbrand said. You know why we prayed for the communists? Because we knew that God could change one of them. And he would be a powerful advocate for Jesus Christ. And God did that. I'm 
don't have time to tell you about it today. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, Jesus laid before us a powerful, impossible ethic. We live in a world that's becoming more and more dangerous, and we literally don't know what we will face from day to day, but we do know that you love us and that you live in us and that you will give us the power to honor and glorify you. Lord, help us as we go forth today and every day to remember that we should be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. And the only way we can do that is through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll thank you for all you do in Jesus' name.